Welcome to the supporting cast. This is Eli Goldsmith. Today's guest is Gina Prince-Bythewood, a director and writer whose films include Love and Basketball, The Secret Life of Bees, Beyond the Lights, and most recently, 2020's The Old Guard, a $70 million action film starring Charlize Theron and Kiki Lane. In this episode, Gina speaks about her beginnings in Pacific Grove, California, finding motivation through athletics and inspiration through the encouragement of great teachers, leading her to UCLA Film School, writing for television, and then a chance to write and direct her first film, Love and Basketball, at just 28. Gina speaks about her love of filmmaking, the intimacy of directing actors, and the joy of building character, but also the systemic challenges that black women like her face in building careers in Hollywood, particularly behind the camera. Having recently accepted a leadership role with the Directors Guild, Gina now finds herself quite encouraged by the conversations occurring around her and what she sees as real progress being made across the industry. New and meaningful directing opportunities are also making their way to Gina, including two upcoming projects, Women of the Movement, a limited series about Mamie and Emmett Till that Gina recently shot in Mississippi, and The Woman King, a historical epic a la Braveheart about an all-female military unit and starring Viola Davis. Gina Prince-Bythewood on film, family, and making more room at the table for diverse filmmakers in Hollywood. This is The Supporting Cast. Bythewood. Welcome to the supporting cast. Good to be here. Thank you for being here. My first question, certainly with this season of the supporting cast, always has to do with how folks are doing personally. And you are a film director. And so I want to get into what you've been doing professionally. But first, you are a parent. You're a parent of a couple of boys. Yes. And how are you and your family doing personally during this strange time in the world? You know, we are doing well. Knock on wood. We all of us were very fortunate. No one got sick during this time. We've stayed safe and healthy. I give my oldest, Cassius, who graduated Harvard Westlake, what, yep. a year and a half ago? You know, he's been very smart and very careful. He just went back about a month ago to NYU after being home for a year. Truthfully, it suddenly became safer in New York than L.A. Yeah. It's a weird thing. I, I feel bad for him, given... Your first year of college, we all know what that is. That's a time where you're on your own and you're independent and you're going to school and you're figuring things out. And that just kind of got cut short. I'm not going to lie. As a mother, I was happy to know he was in his room at night and, and not out you know, at a party or something like that. So selfishly, I got to have another year with him. Yeah. Given that for most of his senior year, I was overseas shooting the old guard. That was really, really tough. So it was almost like I got a, a makeup year with him. But I was also very happy that he was able to go back to NYU. As as I said, I know how important it is that time for yourself. And he just turned 20. It's so bizarre. Wow. And Toussaint, who's a junior, it's been a year 
it's uh, kind of surreal, but he has baseball, so that at least gave him a place to go and some socialization that he would have otherwise missed. And then my husband, Reggie, has he has a show that he's been shooting in Virginia for the last couple months. And the fact that they were able to finish, even though it kept getting dragged out because of COVID, yeah. I'm very proud of that as well. That's great to hear. And you've been busy as well. So I, you have a couple of uh, projects. One is kind of women of the movement. You've shot, I guess, the pilot episode of that. And I'd love to learn about that. And then The Woman King starring Viola Davis, which sounds amazing as well. So maybe take us through those two two projects, whatever you can say. Yeah, Woman of the Movement is an incredible limited series that focuses on Mamie Till and Emmett Till. And it's a story mm. that is so profound and so important and has not been told. There's been some documentaries on it, but the in-depth story of what Mamie went through and the fact that this is a story that happened in the 1950s and is still happening today is soul-crushing and maddening. But uh, it was the first thing I really shot during this COVID era. You know, foremost, I did it because of the subject matter, because my plan was to take time off after the old guard, because that was two years of my life. But this was a story that I needed to tell. What we do is so intimate. Filmmaking is intimate, especially director, Mm. director, actor. The relationship is intimate with your crew. It's intimate. And it was really hard. One, all the PPE that you've got to wear, the the social distancing that you have to do. I don't yell my direction to actors. I I go up. It's a private thing. So it was tough to navigate that. Again, I'm happy we figured out a way to get on set and we didn't have any issues, which was amazing. The bubble that we created was kept very, very tight. And everybody and where were again, you we were in that? Mississippi. Mm. And you know, Mississippi. <laughs> what was that like? It's Mississippi. I'm glad we shot there because that's where it really took place. Yeah. But you feel it. You still feel it there. Mm. I mean, there's Confederate flags everywhere and. You know, it's it's tough. It is it is really tough. You're driving by the river where they threw Emmett in after mm-hmm. they murdered him. You you can drive past the shed where they murdered him, drive past the grocery store where the incident happened. I mean, it's all there. But it was important because it grounded all of us. It pushes. I always work hard, but the responsibility of getting the story right was yeah. so great that it, it, it makes you put up with these things. So, yes, it was hard to do in this COVID era. But the story we're telling deserved that. And so if I have to put up with wearing a mask for 14 hours, you know what? I'll do that to tell the story. And the series covers sort of different women within the civil rights movement. And so your episode focuses on Emmett Till's mother. Is that right? Well, the plan for this series is that it's a limited series. So each year, a different woman of the movement would be focused on, whether Ah, it be not all in the past either. There's so many stories that happen that are contemporary. So this six and a half hours, we call it a six and a half hour movie. And it's it's about Mamie and Emmett. I took in high school, um, I know we'll get to some of your high school teachers and college teachers, but in high school, I took an AP US history class and then loved the teacher so much. I took his black studies class my senior year. And I think the thing that stands out most about that course was Emmett Till, because I think of, I was close to his age. And so I think that stuck out of what happened to him. And then the choice of his mother to open the casket and have people see what they had done to her son and the bravery that took and the impact that had is just, it's uh, incredible. Yeah, it's staggering. And and, yeah, this limited series recreates all of that, but then goes even deeper and tells so much that I didn't know. 
Yeah. So yeah, it's it's an incredible piece. And then the Woman King with Viola Davis. What's that? I mean, about? all you have to do is say Viola Davis. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. It's it's such an incredible true story. It's historical epic about the Agoji warriors um, in the 1800s. They were the main fighting force for the Kingdom of Dahomey and the only empire that had female warriors at the front. And they won. These women were incredible. Wow. So to be able to tell this this incredible true story. I mean, the Dora Milaje in Black Panther are based on these real women. So oh, to be able right? to tell huh. um, this real story of these women. And within this historical epic is this incredible personal story at the heart of it, which is amazing. And as we said, Viola's the lead. And then it's just got incredible action, incredible set pieces, which I cannot wait to dig into because that's what, you know, you think about Braveheart. Like, this is our Braveheart. You know, wow. these, these these type of films, like you love them because of the historical nature of it. They've always got great personal worked in. And there are, you know, these David and Goliath stories of, of how did this smaller kingdom defeat the great empire of the Oyo with these women at the head of it. It's, it's, what a story. It's great. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty great. And so in addition to directing films, you also have taken a new role with the Directors Guild of America, as mm -hmm. I understand. Or would you like to share kind of what that's about and what your goal is with that committee? It's interesting, you know, for so much of my career, I've just been focused on my career, which you have to be, especially, let's be real, as a Black woman in this industry, every project is a fight. You know, getting projects made is a fight. Yeah. So I've just been so wholly focused on that. But things started to change when I was asked to join the Directors Committee of the Academy. And being able to see how we were able to implement changes because the, the academy needed to change and it still needs to change, but the changes we've made have been concrete. So to see that the impact that I can have in being in the room, that's been the biggest issue. We have not been in the room. So mm. our our wants and needs have not been heard and there's no one in there to fight. So now that you know more of us are getting into those rooms, things are changing. So I've been a member of the Directors Guild for a very long time and you know, once uh, after George Floyd's murder and Breonna Taylor's murder, things started to, Hollywood started to wake up finally. You know, there's yeah. been little percolating things throughout the years, but this this stuck. The final acknowledgement of systemic racism and how pervasive it is, and it really is different this time in Hollywood, and, and you, you can't look away and you can't ignore it. And so... I was asked to to join the Western Council, the DGA. It's the same thing. Now I'm in the room and there's others others of us in there and we get to speak on things that are important and push for change within these institutions that haven't had to do that for so long. And also the people we're working with have been incredible. Thomas Shlami is, you know, he heads up the uh, Directors Guild West and I mean, he wants change to happen. He's been incredibly open and incredible ally. So mm. it's been really great to see that. And and then I just became the co-chair of the African-American Steering Committee within the DGA uh, that's been run for a while by Jeff Bird. And I'm just, yeah, I feel, I feel good about using the things that I've learned and my position in being a working director to be able to implement change that can help others coming up after me. Yeah. What are the changes that are being made and can be made. I mean, there's, you know, a few years ago, there was Oscar So White, and people notice when sometimes the acting categories are are without people of color. But 
from what I understand, it's even more pronounced behind the camera, sort of oh. on film crews and also within the studios and within the executives who are making decisions and so forth. So what, I, I don't know if that's the case. And mm -hmm. if so, kind of how do you begin to change that? Because it is, it's systemic yeah. <laughs> in a way, right? No, the the doors are locked. They are absolutely locked. And hmm. as you just mentioned, it's bad enough in front of the camera, but behind the right. camera is abysmal. Hmm. And it's something that I fight against constantly and why it's so important for for people to be in the director's chair, that position of power. You know, the Kinsey just put out a report in conjunction with a group that I'm involved with, which talked about how Hollywood in underfunding black projects has left $10 billion on the table. And they they break it down and they break down how few people are behind the camera hmm. in terms of people of color. And it's stunning. It's 6%, 6 over the last, I think they went from two, 2015 to 2019, looked at the films that were made. Yeah. 6%. Like, how is that possible? But they also detailed how when there is at least one person of color in a position of power, director or producer, that the crews start to diversify. And that's just an obvious thing. Obviously, I know the fight it takes for me to get to my position, I know it's not about talent, it's about opportunity. And so for me, when I'm in this position, I'm going to do the work to find those people that are talented that may have a shorter resume. Because people in this business, they hire who they know. Yeah. They hire based on resume. And again, I just think about Terry Shropshire, who edited Love and Basketball and everything else I've done except for one thing, Despairing Acts. Other than that, she's edited every single thing, every pilot, wow. every movie I've done. I mean, I am lucky to have her. The fact that she did Old Guard by herself when mm -hmm. most of the films like that have two editors because the workload is so enormous. In addition, she can do the dramatic stuff amazing and the action like those are mm. two different muscles. Her resume should be miles long, but it's not. She's the only, the first black woman to do an action film uh, as an editor. Mm. But for me, again, it's not, there's nothing PC about me hiring Terry. She is great. And yeah. I'm lucky that I did the work and found her. And that was Love and Basketball. She did Eve's Bayou. And I love that movie. And mm -hmm. so that's what got her in the room. And then she, after our meeting, she wrote uh, for Love and Basketball, she wrote this five-page letter to me about why she was so passionate about to tell the story. And that's what you want. You want someone who's passionate. Yeah. So that, that trumps a giant resume. And um, again, it's important for us in the positions of power to do the work and look beyond a resume and just look at talent and look at passion because folk are hungry to show what they can do. My first job out of college, I was interested in working in the music industry, and I worked at CAA mm -hmm. in the music department. They paid, I think what the equivalent was, was something like $21,000 a year or something like that. And and I remember thinking at the time, like, how are people sort of making this work? And it turned out that most of the people hired had family money who yeah. were supporting them, right? And it was almost all, I think it was entirely white, all the assistants, at least that I was around. And I think about that because so many people get their starts at agencies, right? Who who then move into production companies and become producers and executives. And you know, if that's sort of the culture they're building, even from the beginning, from the person who's just out of out of college and stepping into that world, and then you can see how that filters all 
Mm-hmm. all through the industry as a whole. Yeah, and it's interesting you brought that up because that's something that's just been recently exposed. Yeah, so many people who don't have generational wealth, you cannot afford that entry-level job, which, as you just said, you get in at that level for CAA or William Morris. It's, it's, yep. a, it's a pipeline to, to yep. the industry. And if you can't afford to do that, you know, you're- Or an internship yeah, or an unpaid internship. Exactly, right? you're locked out. So- that is something that is being addressed as we speak. I know CAA has now instituted some programs to fix that. And there's been a couple groups that we've been really looking to work with HBCUs and create a natural pipeline. Ah, um, yeah. We are finally addressing that. But that was definitely a, a secret within the industry that people weren't talking about. Yeah. So that's the type of change you're starting to see yeah. is those types of conversations starting to take place. Absolutely. So now I want to get to your beginning. So you were born and raised here in Los Angeles. Is that right? No, I was born. No. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I was born <laughs> born in Chicago, adopted out there. And then my family moved to California when I was about one. Ah, so raised out here. Yeah. yeah. So raised in Pacific Grove, California was the bulk of my upbringing. And uh, it's a place up north near Carmel, Pebble Beach. And did you go to public school in Pacific Grove? Yeah. Pacific Grove High School. It was a really good school. And it's interesting because there's a big private school and then there's a public school. And all of us all went to the same elementary school and then you branch. And uh, all the rich kids <laughs> from Pebble Beach went to uh, Robert Louis Stevenson and the rest of us stayed in, in public school. But it was interesting because we were all such good friends. And then you become competitors, especially mm-hmm. in sports, which was, you know, dominated my whole existence throughout junior high and high school. And you had a teacher in elementary school, though, that was influential to you. Is that right? Yeah, Mrs. Parent. I was incredibly shy. So shy. Yeah. She just took a liking to me. And it's so interesting, you know, how influential teachers are. Because you hear horror stories of teachers who kind of have crushed kids. Certainly part of my shyness came from growing up in an all-white town and, you know, within my own family, not even seeing myself reflected. You know, she just made me feel special. This sounds so silly, but... It was a big deal to be able to run the projector, you know, because back then Mm. to watch stuff, it wasn't popping a DVD and, you know, you put the film in the projector and you turn out the lights and you pull the screen down. And and the fact that I got to do that, which is really interesting, me being a filmmaker now, but I always remember that, that she used to let me do that. But yeah, she just, she made me feel special at a time where I didn't, where I felt invisible. And uh, I've never, never forgotten that. I guess, you know, projecting forward, is that... Part of the reason you became a, a director also just in terms of seeing yourself reflected on the screen or, or people that look like you reflected on the screen as well? I mean, that that started my journey as a writer. Absolutely. Uh, I think about the first time I saw different strokes on television because mm-hmm. my brother yeah. and I, I have a younger brother and he and I are both black and we were both adopted I remember the first time I saw it, I was shocked because I was seeing my story, myself reflected, you know, for me writing, because I used to be a voracious reader. I used to read a book a day. Mm. I just love storytelling. And so then that started leading me to write short stories myself. And then that turned into writing scripts. And what I loved about it is that I could write happy endings. I could control uh, the the yeah. characters and what happened to them. And I, I love that power because so many things were happening in my personal life, which you know you kind of want to get away from. And so writing was absolutely a, a very cool outlet 
I didn't understand what directing was till I got to UCLA and started working on short films on crew uh, at the film school. And that's when it clicked. Oh, that person does all of this. And that excited me. And that's when my mind flipped from being a writer to writer director. But, but high school was sort of in between. And you mentioned you were an athlete. You also mentioned there was a teacher in high school as well, but you were also a pretty serious athlete. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, my parents props to them put, uh, us girls in sports, I have two older sisters ever since we were five years old. So started with soccer and then softball. Once I got to high school, track and basketball. Well, I lettered in seven sports, but track and basketball were wow. definitely the, the big ones. And I was very good. But it was great because it, all those things sports taught me. Absolutely, I applied to this industry. Yeah, how so? What are, what are those things? Oh, my gosh. Ambition is good. Outwork everybody. Leave everything out on the floor. Stamina. Those things which so many girls aren't taught. You know, mm. you're taught to be quiet and be careful. <laughs> and, uh, don't speak too loudly. But that's not sports. Yeah, it's also interesting because being shy. But I was not shy on the court. I was loud and I talked smack and it was just this different person could come out on the court. And I got the applause that I was so craving in normal yeah. life there. Uh, you know, I was a star. It was a really great time. And then ended up running track at UCLA before I got into film school. And yeah, sports is, is a beautiful thing. Competing is a beautiful thing. I just, I love it. And was there a teacher also in high school that was influential? Yeah. My AP English teacher, Mrs. Coulter, she was somebody that really encouraged my love of reading, storytelling, loved my writing, would read anything that I wrote, and just opened my eyes to so many great authors and stories. It was, she was great. It's very cool because I I got to go back to my high school because I was inducted into the Hall of Fame Uh of my high school, and she was there, and I got to, in my speech, I, I spoke, and she was there. I got to speak about her influence on oh. me, which you know blew her away because I don't think teachers often get to hear how they've influenced their students, and uh, so that that was really great that well, I was able to that's do part that. Part of the goals of this this podcast, you know, <laughs> is in hopes that a teacher might listen. Mm. So that's that's great that you had that opportunity, and that she had that opportunity. Yeah. And this was an athletic hall of fame, I guess. It was at the school, yeah. or was it a? Yeah, it was athletic. Yeah. I still own the. Uh, I've scored the most points in basketball. It hasn't it hasn't been usurped yet, so very proud of that. And so then you get to UCLA. You're running track. What was your event in I was track? well in high school I did high jump, triple jump, long jump, four by one hundred and the two hundred. And then once I got to UCLA I focused on triple jump. And then you started to get into film immediately or was it kind of later? Yeah, at in UCLA the years? you could only apply your junior year so Mm. ran track my sophomore year and then got into film school and at that point I had to make a choice because you know track it's two a days it's it's a lot yeah and it really limits the classes you can take and so at that point I had to make the decision hey this is what I want for my career I don't think I'm gonna be a professional track athlete and so it was hard to give up sports but I knew that I was about to learn had to do what I love to do. And so I'm at that point made that decision. But my freshman and sophomore year, as I was waiting to apply to film school, I hung out at the film school constantly, took any class I could where you didn't have to be in the major. 
and worked on short films, student films. And then the biggest thing I did, and this goes to another very influential teacher, was a teacher, This is his name was Ivan, and for some reason I'm blanking on his last name. He did television production. And UCLA Film School had a soap opera that they wrote, directed, produced, and then it, it aired across the country on the National College Network. So as a freshman, I joined that on the crew and worked. And I remember he was just very cool. I always liked him. And I remember it was me and like three other freshmen that were working on it. And we just thought, and I'm going to say this, but it is the arrogance of youth. We just thought the stuff that the older (laughs) folks were writing was corny. And so (laughs) we wrote an episode of our own. And on a Saturday, I don't know how we did it. We hijacked the remote truck. We just snuck and, and did it and shot it, edited it, and then showed him. And we could have gotten into incredible trouble. But instead of that, he was so impressed. He like sat everybody down and told the older students, this is what you should be doing. Like, this is, look at what they did mm. with the characters and story. That was amazing. That was amazing validation for, for what we did. And the fact that he encouraged our, you know, again, we did something that we shouldn't have done, but it was rewarded. And that yeah, that, yeah. that felt really good. And from that point on, he was the most influential teacher I had at film school. We we I took all his classes and he was so supportive of me constantly throughout my time. Out of UCLA Film School, I got an internship through the Television Arts and Sciences, which is still going on today. It's a very cool internship where you apply and uh, you have to be in college or have just graduated. I was placed at Quincy Jones Entertainment, who was doing Fresh Prince of ah. Bel Air at that time. So, oh yeah, yeah, it was a very cool environment to be in. And then at the same time, I applied for the Writer's Apprenticeship at A Different World, which was my favorite show. And yeah. um, and that's an incredible thing where you're you're essentially it's a Writers Go program, and you're placed in the writers' room. You just don't get paid those big bucks, but you get paid a little bit. But being in there is how you learn. And so I got yeah, that. So it's... I got to be on my favorite show pretty close out of college. And that really started my career in television. And so you were writing for TV for, for five years, five years until I guess the big break was love and basketball. Yeah. I, I had this idea in my head for this movie. I wanted to do this very personal movie. And I yeah, kept realizing about college athletes. <laughs> exactly. And yeah. I realized I couldn't write at the same time I was writing for TV. It's just too all encompassing. So I said, let me take a year off and write the script. And if I can sell it in a year, then great. And if not, I'll go back to TV. And that year turned into a year and a half. And and that was just a long time of writing. And my husband, Reggie Rock, who I met on A Different World, we were hired a week apart. Oh, is that right? Yeah. He gave such tremendous help on the script and, you know, just kept sending me back. And every time I thought it was ready, he'd give me more notes and more notes. And But finally went out with it. Every studio turned it down. It was devastating to spend a year and a half of your life on something and think that it's good and get crickets. It's really, really hard. And and I didn't know what I was going to do. I was completely stuck. And then literally two days later after the last no, the Sundance program called. They had heard about the script and wanted to meet. 
And that just changed everything. That was an incredible program. I got to go through the writer's lab and the director's lab. And they put on a reading of the script as well. And Spike Lee's company was there. And they heard it Ah. and came to me and said, we want to do this. And that was great. And then we went to New Line and Mike DeLuca loved it. And the rest is history. Wow. So did you learn anything from Spike Lee going through that process? Was he at a distance because it was sort of his company or was he kind of a mentor to you through your first kind of filmmaking experience? Now, honestly, it was really great. He left me alone mm. and New yeah. Line left me alone. I never had it that good ever after that first <laughs> one. I really was left alone to do the film I wanted to make. You know, of course, having Spike as a producer, I know they thought, I'm sure if I started messing up that he could step in and save it, but that didn't happen. And so, you know, I would say prior to me shooting Love and Basketball, you know, Spike, after every movie he put out, he he would put out books, which talked about how he made it. So certainly, I think all of us read those books. So that was super helpful. But yeah, it was it was an incredible experience to to be left alone. Scary, too, you know, because it's your first. And, yeah. and I was petrified every day. I didn't want to fail because I thought if I failed, that was it. But it was it was a very good, good environment. But the athletes in the film go to USC. Is that right? Rather than UCLA? How did that happen, Gina? How did you let that happen? Talk to UCLA. Yeah, I'm a diehard (laughs) Bruin. They said no. They said no. They said that they They don't. They said no. Because it was very important. I could have shot on the campus, but I couldn't say they're at UCLA. And I hate hate movies which make up college names because it just feels fake. Yeah, and no, so I know what you mean. USC said yes. You can have the run of our place. You can use everything. So I had to say yes. And uh, the fact <laughs> that so many women have talked to me about like joining USC and wanting to play for USC because of because that movie kills me a little bit. Big recruiting <laughs> tool, but you know I, I'm always and forever will be grateful to USC for for giving me that because. Once I had them, then other schools started to say yes. So in the film, there it's all schools that are real, except UCLA. UCLA never even let me do one thing with their name. Yeah. So yeah, that sucks. And so your career as a film director begins from there. And that film was well-received, well-reviewed. Were you able to get kind of regular gigs from there? Or was it still a struggle to get the next one? Yeah, I mean, you're laughing. Yeah, because, you know, (laughs) you look at the time between Love Basketball and Secret Life of Bees. Well, so what happened is actually I did do I did do Disappearing Acts right after. And I got Disappearing Acts because of Love and Basketball. Disappearing Acts was my favorite book by Terry McMillan. Prior to Love and Basketball, I had heard they were going to make it, tried to get a meeting. I couldn't even get in the door. Nothing. As soon as I did Love and Basketball, boom. I got in the door and then got the gig. Okay. So I shot that with Sanaa also, which was great to work with her again. Oh, the same lead yeah. from uh, Love and Basketball. Yes. Mm-hmm. So I shot that right after and then I needed a break. But then I, I started developing another project and that's when kind of reality kind of hit me in the face a bit. And that once you do back-to-back films, you feel like, yeah, I'm going to just, whatever I want to do, I'm going to do. And that that doesn't happened. So, I mean, I developed a project for two years that didn't end up going. And it's weird to be on something for that long that you have nothing to show for it. So that happened twice before The Secret Life of Bees. Wow. It was a long time. And you look at so many women, certainly in this industry, how many don't get that second film. 
that's you know it's a real mm. it's a real problem in our industry and and something that people have been focused on in the last couple of years of how do we fix that because yeah that second film is i mean it's tough to get any film yeah but that's interesting you would think getting that first foot in the door making that first film will be the tough part but you're saying that it's also difficult to so difficult for, for people to sort of trust you for the second time and why is that do you think i could not even it makes no sense because it doesn't yeah. happen on the flip side it does not happen with men with men i mean well part of it is what do we gravitate towards and Making films with female leads is tougher to get made because the people making the decisions are not women. They are mm -hmm. men. And so they're green lighting the things that they want to see or they understand. Yeah. And certainly for black women, if I'm doing things that focus on black women, there's nobody like that in a position of power uh, until now, until these last two years with uh, Nicole Brown at TriStar and Alana Mayo at- Who's a at Harvard Westlake alum, by the way, Nicole Brown. Did you know that? No. Yeah. Nicole Brown is a Harvard Westlake alum. How did I not know that? I literally just talked to her. I hung <laughs> up with her right before this call because we're, did you? we're doing oh, you'll have The to. Woman King. So, oh, really? Yeah, she's, she's, uh, it's her studio. Yeah. At Sony, right? Is that right? Yeah, though. I mean, no? she runs TriStar, which is right under Sony, I guess. That's right. That's say, right. Oh, my gosh. Okay. We'll have to have that conversation. Um <laughs> But yeah, it's really tough because we need more people in power to understand that don't just make movies that, I mean, of course you want to make things that you're attracted to, but there's there's a huge audience out there of so many different things. You just have to be more open-minded. But also, honestly, we just need more people, different people in those positions of power making decisions. So then you have Secret Life of Bees, Beyond the Lights, which is a movie I love. Well, thank and, you. Uh, and then most recently... Old Guard, mm -hmm. which is a big action movie for Netflix. Yeah. Over that period, were there people on those films or executives that championed you or people you learned from kind of during that mm -hmm. period? Not really. Honestly, it was really more my my core. I mean, my husband and I, we are our, our own little pod where we create and, yeah. and really push each other and work on each other's things and, and make sure... Like they have to get past either of us before they get in the world because the world, we will be tougher on each other than the world will be. But you have one shot at a first impression in this industry. So before you go out mm. with the script, it's got to be great. So, you know, we just beat up on each other. But I will say there's been a couple people that have been helpful. Certainly when I made this, I'm going to say step to the old guard. It wasn't elite because I had developed Silver and Black, which was Marvel Sony film for two years, which didn't end up going, mm. um, but led to the old guard. So all the things I learned in developing that, I was able to take to the old guard. So it wasn't this giant leap there it was, you know, a step. So, but Ryan Johnson, who's an incredible filmmaker who did Last Jedi and, and um, Looper, mm -hmm. he, and Knives Out, of course, he's been so great. He he saw Beyond the Lights and just became a champion of mm -hmm. me. And, and he was a great resource to call during this. Patty Jenkins, of course, who did Wonder Woman, was a great yeah. resource. Because doing big action joints is different. There, You have to start with the basics, which is telling a good story and creating compelling characters. But just the making of it is different. So to have yeah. two people who've done it before and done it really well to be able to just lean on them and, and get insight and what is it going to be like and what are some things to try to avoid was super helpful. And where was that filmed? 
It was filmed in London and Morocco. Wow. And you said it took two years. Yeah. I mean, two years from when I got the gig to, to, to when I finished. It was, I was overseas nine and a half months. So I came back every month for between five and seven days. And then, but once I started shooting, then the boys visited me over there. But it was tough mm. because during school and, but they were able to come for short periods and that was great. And they had fun be able to be on, on that set, which was cool. But it was a 63-day shoot. That's a long, long time. That was double what I've ever done. And that was one of the things wow. Patty talked about is the stamina that it takes to do that, to be under that level of pressure for that amount of time. Everything is on you, and you have to be so singular focused. You can't get hurt. You can't get sick. You can't have a bad day. You are the captain. It's a lot. But again, that sports mentality of stamina and outworking everybody was certainly something that I could lean on. And what's your kind of technique in working with the leads of these movies? You mentioned that one of the things that's made this period hard is that you're wearing a mask or a shield and you're trying to have this intimate conversation with an actor and trying to support their best work. And so when you're working with someone who's really carrying a film, you know, whether it's the, the two leads in The Old Guard or whether it's Gugu Mbatha-Ra, is that how yeah. you uh, uh, Gugu's, pronounce Gugu's it, awesome. in Beyond the Lights? who is incredible in that movie. Like, I don't know how she's not a gigantic movie star. I don't get it either. Right now. The industry, right? man. <laughs> no, it's... Uh... Yeah, what sh how do you work? I mean, every personality is different, mm -hmm. I assume, but, you know, th there's a lot of pressure on, on their shoulders, I imagine, mm -hmm. as well. Yeah, what I, I love about the process is building character. That's one of my favorite things, mm -hmm. doing the process between director and actor. And certainly when I've written it all myself is the best because I've already been directing in my head as I've write as I've been writing. But like with Gugu, she trained for six months to and you, you think about people only training for an action film, but she had to learn how to dance like that. She had to learn how to sing like that. It was just such a totally different muscle. But all that training is part of the rehearsal process. So mm. that's what I love because it was helping to build her character, building truth that she could draw on. And I put her in situations where she could draw on things. I mean, we went to clubs up in VIP with the Clippers right next to us. Like that's where I got the idea for the scene in the club because that happened when we went to the club for research. And I was like, oh, yeah. half the Clippers team is right next to us. That would happen with Noni, you know? So let me, let me reach out to DeAndre Jordan and see if he'll you know, come to a cameo. Yeah, But you just, you know, we went to concerts, we went to the Grammys backstage, you know, and you just learn so much in being in those environments and, and to put Gugu in these environments, which were foreign to her. Because she's British, yeah, she's is that British, right? Yeah, she's British, so it yeah. was not a part of the industry at all. And it's a singular thing. So to, to build that truth for her was so much fun. And the people I put around her, Lorianne Gibson, who was her choreographer and dance teacher, like she works with Diddy, she works with Lady Gaga, she works with Nicki Minaj. So that knowledge and all that stuff she could teach Gugu, the hair person, Kim Kimball, is Beyonce's hair person. So wow. to be able to have that around her, it was it was just great. And so that's what I love. You know, Old Guard with Kiki Lane. She had never done sports, never done action in her life. But I trusted her that she was going to work as hard as she could to embody Nile. And she did, but all of that training, and that was two-a-days for a couple months, all of that was building her character, building Niall, building this Marine, a female Marine. Mm. So it's such a cool time building character. And, and as you're building character, you're building trust and you're 
you're getting to know each other because that's important as well. Because once you're on set, it's my job as a director to create a space that uh, they feel safe enough to give me everything. And yeah. that's where great performances come from, where you feel free and safe uh, and confident. And for those who haven't seen Beyond the Lights, Gugu plays like a Beyonce-like pop star and develops a romantic relationship with a cop. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yeah. And, and did I read that most of the crew on that film were female? That that was the, the department heads were, yeah, almost all female. And that's mm. the thing. When you have department heads who are female or people of color, they're going to be more inclined to dig deep and, and fill their crews with the same. So it was, yeah. it was a, a great vibe on that set. And then the old guard, you're working with Netflix. Does that mm -hmm. change things when your your boss sort of is a streaming company or the, mm -hmm. the studio is sort of a streaming company as opposed to a studio? It was the first time I'd worked with Netflix. Yeah. First time I was going to have a film come out on streaming as opposed to theatrical, which I was not sure about. And honestly, when we made the deal, we were going to have both theatrical and streaming. Uh, Who knew a pandemic was going to happen? And yeah. it ended up being the perfect place to to have this film the last half of it in terms of finishing it the the mix the color timing the vis effects was all done remotely but mm. we were able to figure it out and and do it on the level that it deserved i just didn't know how it was going to feel because yeah. usually you know obviously theatrical you sneak into theaters and you watch the audience and you look at the box office returns and it's you know this thing so i just didn't know how it was going to feel and it was pretty great because of social media. It's like yeah. immediate and it's global. We dropped in 193 countries in one day. I've never heard that in my life. And it's surreal, the amount of audience that wow. we had. And it's the access. And that's what I love about Netflix is giving such opportunity to so many filmmakers and different types of filmmaking. You know, we did have a theatrical home for this. I won't say the studio, but... Netflix gave us almost double the amount of money because, you know, for studios, there was a fear of heading up action films with women where Netflix mm. was actively looking for that. And wow. you go where you're wanted, not where you're, you know, like, okay, maybe this will work. They wanted Taking us. Taking a risk kind yeah, of thing. Yeah. yeah you, right. you want that, that great support. So I'm happy the way it worked out. Absolutely. Yeah. Lastly, there's some kind of standard questions I want to end with, but you mentioned that you and your husband have a partnership, not only in raising your, your kids, but mm -hmm. in working together. I just interviewed recently the, the founders of Mendocino Farms, the, the wow. restaurant, are, are actually married, a married couple who are Harvard Westlake parents. And I asked them the same thing. How does it work dealing with one another as spouses and as parents when there are challenges that come up just as a family and mm -hmm. you can get annoyed with one another, I imagine, from time to time? How does that work when you're kind of partners creatively as well? Have you found out a way to separate or is there no separation or are there different aspects of what you work on that mm -hmm. each of you kind of own? How does it work for you and Reggie? I mean, I would say like on Shots Fired, we created it together. We were, we produced it together. Once we started production, I focused more on the director's and he focused more in the writing room. So we were able to do that. And then we both focused on editing. The hmm. beautiful thing about working together is that there's somebody in the room with you that you know you can trust 100%. And hmm. when you're fighting with the studio or, or the network on notes you disagree with or them pushing you to cast somebody you don't want to cast, and to know that somebody has your back 
is really everything because I have been in a situation where I didn't have that and it was a nightmare. So that that's a great thing about working together is that. And, you know, it's hard to turn it off when you come home because yeah. you're still talking about the show and stuff. But, you know, <laughs> right. we're, we're proud of the work that we did. So and now we we have a production company and it's about producing other people's work and giving others the opportunity that we have had. Um, so we're excited about it. All right. So to end up, there are a few standard questions as part of the supporting cast. They relate to LA where, where you guys live now and, and are raising your kids. We are obviously known for our movies, uh, but also our food and our climate. So my first question is what is Gina Prince Bythewood's favorite movie? That's really tough. I have, you know, I have like a top five. <laughs> yeah. What's your top, what's your top five? Um, I imagine it would be a yeah, more and, complex answer for someone who does this for a living. Yeah, I would say my top five, Broadcast News, The Graduate, Goodfellas, uh, Out of Sight, hmm. and I will say Central Station. I don't know Central Station. What's Central oh Station? Oh my God, it's so good. you got to watch it. It was a film, an independent film that came out the same year as Life is Beautiful. And it, it got oh. a lot of... It may have been nominated for a foreign film Oscar. It's a beautiful film. It wrecks you. It will wreck mm. you. I was sobbing in the theater. So I hate that. But so well done. Yeah, it's a good movie. My wife and I just watched Out of Sight again. We hadn't seen it in a while. It's, it's such so a good. good movie. And it holds up. Like <laughs> It does hold up. Oh my God, I love that movie so much. And the banter between the two and the scene in the trunk of the car. I mean, everything. It's so well done. Classic. Classic. Yeah. Secondly, what's your favorite meal? In Los Angeles. Is there a favorite restaurant or is there something wow. you guys like to make at home? <laughs> yeah, Postmate. Um, <laughs> or Postmate. <laughs> what is my favorite? I'm gonna say, you know, there's two restaurants I love. My Two Cents, which is really good. And it's like, it's kind of healthy, high-end soul food. And then Jamaican I love, Sat Down Grill in Studio City. Hmm. It's really good. And then this other place that I've been obsessed with, and Cassius keeps asking about it because he hasn't found anything in New York. It's called the Memphis <laughs> yeah. Grill, and they mm. have incredible barbecue chicken. And you have to, you can't go up and order. You have to order ahead of time. They always run out of chicken. Like, it's that kind of place. Yeah. So get your order in early. But uh, it's so good. That's in North Hollywood. Thirdly, what is your favorite place in LA? Is there a part of town, or is there a place that you guys like to go as a family wow or is it the ucla campus <laughs> poly pavilion <laughs> i did used to when they were little i used to like to take they went to ucla lab school of course yeah but i did used to love walking around the sculpture garden with the boys yeah yeah that's a good question you know what is throwing me because the pandemic i haven't been anywhere right in right, a year so i'm like racking my brain of of where we used to like to go i mean honestly we used to go to the movies the arc light you know that that's mm. our happy place we used to go Sher arc light sherman oaks or hollywood or arc like sherman oaks and we used yeah. to go at least once a week as a family to movies mm. so mm. yeah that's and we love the popcorn we love the the reserve seating where you not have to look for a yep. seat in the dark yep. excuse me excuse me it's like they just made it so easy and, and lovely i cannot wait to get back to that yeah last question uh, you were the parent of two boys, I think, what, a junior and a, a college sophomore? sophomore. Yeah. I am the father of a two-year-old little girl. Oh. 
Um, and I have another on the way, actually. Congrats. expecting another. Thank you. So my last question I'm asking everyone is, what is your best parenting advice? Either that <laughs> has been given to you or that mm-hmm. is an original to you and, and Reggie. You know, I'm, I'm going to say this, it is, and it's a cliche, but being in the position I'm in now, it's something that has been constantly on my mind. And that is how fast it goes. That mm. I just remember when they were babies and you just, I can't wait till they can walk. I can't wait till they can talk. I can't wait till we get to this, this milestone, this milestone. And then you look up and they're 20 and 17 and you don't, like you never get that time back. And yeah. I wish yeah. in the moment I was more focused on not what's next, but what is now. So mm. that's staying that's present advice. with them. Yeah. Staying present with them, especially when they're young. Yeah. Not being so eager to, to get to the next milestone, but just live in the moment. That's great advice. Well, Gina, thank you so much for spending the time with us. Absolutely. And talking to us about some of your very exciting upcoming projects and some of your past ones as well. And thank you for joining the supporting cast. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. 